from the time that they pronounced me dead was a good 45 minutes. They cut my clothes and then they paddled my heart because my heart had stopped. And I could see people screaming and crying, but I didn't realize that was actually my physical body because I was somewhere else. The only thing that I could feel, if you could imagine absolute love and peace, there wasn't anything else to be felt. I was greeted by people I had known in the past. I'm back home again. Incredibly safe and felt at home. Before we jump into today's interview, I just want to mention that it's with Gary, who lives on Maui, not too far from where the tragic fires burned. Our discussion was recorded a few days before the fires, and I'm happy to report that Gary and his friends and family are all okay, but many of them lost their homes and businesses. Our thoughts, prayers, and aloha goes out to all those dealing with this tragedy. Always remember, Maui no ka'oi. Welcome to Round Trip Death, everybody, and I'd like to welcome our special guest today, Gary Gillette, all the way from Maui. How are you, Gary? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Good. Now, one of the things that I've learned in doing this podcast, when we started, I assumed that maybe there were some people out there that had had one NDE. I never even thought somebody might have two, let alone three, let alone how many you've had, which there's our little tease that we're going to get to <laughs> later as we get chatting today. But um, Gary is a lot of fun. Tell us a little bit about you, Gary. Well, I am, um, I guess you would say multifaceted. <laughs> um, I learned at an early age that creativity is life. And so I got into uh, being an artist and then a musician and then I played around with the art of voice acting, and then uh, I became more serious of a writer, I guess you could say. Then I traveled a bit, and I learned languages as I traveled, and the accents of all the different countries, and all the different plays, and all the different ways of kind of creating, you know. So uh, (laughs) I guess I'm still doing that. (laughs) Nothing's changing. Should I put you on the spot and ask you to give us a couple here and there? How about Irish? Oh, you want an Irish accent? We're going to start out that way, are we? Oh, sure, why not? <laughs> How about good old Hawaiian pigeon English? Oh, hey, brother. What are you talking about, Hawaiian? Yesterday I go for buy one beer, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, everything for no, brother. <laughs> All right. We're going to have fun with Gary today. <laughs> and you're way up on the mountain um, on Maui and have a great view. But let's take a different kind of view now. Let's look back over some of your near-death experiences, starting when you were very young. Tell us about NDE number one. I was just born. So that is pretty young, isn't it? So how can you remember it? That's the question I can't wait for you to talk about. (laughs) I guess the funny thing is you, you aren't a human when... You die. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm going to say. Okay. I was a baby and I was uh, just born. And I remember my grandmother who told my mother, my grandmother was very religious, by the way. She told my mother, pick out a grave. He's not coming home because of SIDS, a sudden infant death syndrome. 
which I think was just in, incandescent or back then. I don't know if it, they changed it or whatever. But I know that I was among other babies, and a lot of us died and didn't come back, but I was one of the ones who did. And in all seriousness, do you actually remember some of that, or did you just grow up knowing that you had had this experience from others? Uh, both, uh, because you are never in doubt when you actually have a near-death experience. It's more real than what we consider life now that you think is a, a real, this, this whole Maya, this illusion we call life is exactly that. When you die, you're like, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot. I'm a spirit <laughs> and I'm not supposed to necessarily be in human form, but here's what happened. I, I was like, okay, so I was delighted to come home so soon to tell you the truth. And they said, well, we took a boy from your family earlier, nine years earlier than I had been born, uh, my brother. So I was like, and, and I'm trying to make out what, what the relevance was as, as a spirit. I'm like, so what? <laughs> and so you have two beautiful daughters, you two beautiful girls, but they're praying and crying that for a boy because they took Michael, who had died from pneumonia when he was a baby, six months old, actually. And so I said, okay. So they said, so you're going to go back <laughs> and you're going to live with this family and they're going to love you. I said, well, not as much as you, you know, here, not as much as here. No. It's impossible. I said, they're going to do the best they can. Give them a chance. Go back and be a good boy and be the boy they've always wanted. Mm. And that was my message. That was it. And you were a baby. How old were you? <clears throat> just born. Just absolutely newborn. Okay. I'm almost just fresh out. <laughs> I'm not even sure how, how long it was, but uh, later on, my mom conferred. She said, yeah. She says, I couldn't believe that uh you know that we were going to lose you and then here you were you you were back i said yeah i know <laughs> i took it kind of matter of fact because i'm like i was there remember yeah do you remember the song 50 ways to leave your lover yeah i'm wondering how that applies to your situation of how many different ways can <laughs> someone die in their life well, there's one. <laughs> if we were to redo that song into, you know, 50 ways to pass away or whatever. Do we really want to go there? <laughs> no, we don't. But your next NDE is so freakishly unusual. Take us forward to the eight-year-old little Gary. I think that would be a good verse in the song. <laughs> I can make one up right now, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you the facts of it. Okay. So I'm watching cartoons. Me, me, you know, we're on Road Runner and hey, what's up, Doc? All the gang, you know, and I'm having a great time. And then I hear something outside, and it's like, and it's just, oh, it's just a lawnmower. So I look outside, and sure enough, my my friend is helping his brother mow the lawn, a little strip of grass behind a, a, a store called 50 Mart, where I lived, you know, right behind the store. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I said, well, Bugs Bunny can maybe wait. I'm, eight years old and I got my PJs on and my family's still asleep and let's go explore the world. So I put my slippers on and off I go. Where were you living then? This was a different era, 19, <laughs> 1967, Hacienda Heights, California. Okay. Beautiful Saturday morning. All right, keep going. <laughs> so I walk out there and I see my friend and I hear the lawn being mowed and I smile and wave and I'm, hola, hola amigo, hey Gary, hola, que paso, hola. So we're all like happy and smiling and he's my, you know, he's, he's my schoolmate at school with his brother, older brother, uh, Miguel. And so I was like, okay, so I'm just going to sit here and 
or stand here and watch. I mean, what else have I got to do? It's kind of a cool thing to, to as an eight-year-old. You're thinking, this guy's making money doing this. This is amazing. What a world. <laughs> and then I hear the sound of a very, very loud, I guess you would say like steel being thrown into a wood chipper. It's like, and the next thing I know, something slaps my neck. Just goes slaps. And I was like, what the, what the heck was that? And I'm just like trying to make sense of it. And I'm going, amigo, que es esto? Hijo, hijo de mi arrabandad. And oh boy, they're saying words I didn't know yet. <laughs> Miguel, Miguel, look, look, look. Oh my God, it's like, what? What's going on? And I kind of feel this liquid trickling down my neck. I taste it. Oh, no, oh, that's blood. That's not water. It's probably is not going to end well. There goes my Saturday morning, you know, cartoon viewing, because I usually, you know, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., you got that full, the full day. So they finally settled them to turn the mower off. And the next thing I know, they're saying, you know, siéntate, siéntate, sit down, sit down. So I, I sit down and I'm still trying to figure out what this thing is in my neck. And apparently it's <laughs> sticking out quite a ways to where it's quite a sight. And uh, you can see on the book, uh, This Boy is About to Die, The Life, Death, and Life of Gary G. On Amazon, you can see the picture of me laying on a gurney. I don't know if you have it with you, but uh, that would be a good thing to, to show. And uh, what happened apparently was the lawnmower picked up a bolt about six inches long, I would say something like that. And it's a winding incline steel bolt that's maybe an easy half inch round that's used to mount uh, transformers onto the utility poles. Well, it shot it right into my neck on an angle. It just stuck right in there. And thankfully, I guess it became its own cork. So it stayed in there. And then uh, after a while, people were starting to come out of their houses and Ray Montanez, uh, one of our, our barbers came over and he put a, a rolled up a blanket or whatever from the from the barber and rolled up and put it under my head. That felt kind of good because it took the weight off the, the, the bolt. And next thing I hear, here comes the, here comes the, what's going on? Oh, this is for me, isn't it? <laughs> my sister told my family they thought I was hit by a car or one of the neighbors did. And they were kind of freaking out because I'm just laying on the grass. So they didn't know what had happened either. And uh, for me, it just was like, okay, so... This is uh, just another day in the life of, of a young boy. Can I just interject something? Because lawnmowers back in those days were a little bit different than they are now. They used to throw the grass out the side. <laughs> they sure did. And if you had a grass catcher, it was on the side, but most people didn't. They're much safer now, but they used to throw rocks and Oh, yeah, I got hit by a lot of them. All kinds of things. I've never heard about somebody getting hit by a six-inch bolt. Yeah, that was quite a fling when you think about it, to be able to shoot it. I'm eight years old, so I'm roughly, what, four and a half feet off the ground? Yeah. <laughs> and it shot straight up, right into my neck. And actually stuck in your neck. Did it hit the jugular? Ah, here's the key. It missed my jugular vein and spinal cord by one-eighth of an inch, which I learned later. Well, in the meantime, I'm in an ambulance going, this is great. <laughs> I'm an eight-year-old in an ambulance going through red lights going, I'm going, this is me. This is so cool. And the next thing I know, I'm starting to get a little heavy-lidded. My dad's in the back with me. And I'm feeling like, ah, oh, this is kind of a good place to... <laughs> so I fell asleep. I guess they gave me something to help me with that. But I felt no pain. 
I felt no anguish. Remember, I'd already had one near-death experience. It's kind of hard to scare a little boy, you know, who was taking on the world to begin with. And then, you know, I've already had something that was traumatic to most people. <laughs> so I was, next thing I know, I, I am on a gurney. And the picture shows me on a gurney with the thing sticking. I should have a picture for you. We'll get a picture and we'll post it with this. Yeah, okay. And then uh, I'm just watching them operate on this little guy. And I'm watching them going, wow, I hope they don't cut off that shirt. It's his favorite shirt. He, it's his, one of his, I had two pajama tops and they were all like uh, all the national foot, uh, baseball teams. And I had one red one and one blue one. And this was my blue one they were cutting. And I was like looking at it going, huh, he likes that shirt. I was, I was just, as, I was totally apart from the whole scene. I said, wait a minute, how do I know this boy? Oh, that's me. <laughs> oh, they're operating on me right now. So you felt like you were in the same room? Were you like up by the ceiling? Were you? Yeah, I was watching from like above. Okay. Like the ceiling area. And I'm listening to the doctors and I'm thinking, well, it's pretty good life. Eight years, not bad. <laughs> so you didn't feel, you didn't feel traumatized. You weren't scared. You weren't desperate to get back in that body. Not, not the least bit, no. I was more celebrating. I was celebrating the fact that I had a great life. He was a sweet little boy and I'm going to miss him. And the next thing I know, I'm, for lack of a better term, on the other side. And what did you see and experience there? Oh, love, just pure love and acceptance and, and, and them laughing because they, they, they knew I was going back. <laughs> There's a lot of joy in, in you know, heaven or whatever you want to call it. Because I'm surrounded, I see my brother and I see other, other people I recognize right away, even though I don't know why I recognize them. You're going too fast. Give me more detail. Was, was there a journey to get there, for example? Some people talk about a tunnel, some don't. Do you remember any of that part of it? Oh, here's the funny thing. Remember, I'd already had one, so I think it was the quickest route I'd ever imagined. It wasn't like going through a tunnel or anything. I was just there. And without any preconceptions, I already knew what to expect, I guess. So by the time I was there, I was like, oh, this is wonderful. I'm home. I'm like, you're not staying. <laughs> Why not? I put in, you know, eight years. That's a long time to put into a human body. And they're like, no, you're going back. You have to teach people. You have, you get to, you know, your honor, your, your reason you're doing it. And the higher part of you knows this is that you're going back to tell people, I guess, what it's like to, to get over the fear and, and to be, find joy. And actually what they told me was your job, and this is what they reiterated from when I was a baby, and I didn't tell you this, so your job is to teach love. I said, oh, goody, <laughs> I got an easy one. So my job is to teach love and you're going to be fine. And we're not taking you away from this family because we already took one little boy. Remember that? Yeah. So you're going back. You're going to be fine. You're going to, you know, be able to learn from this and, and you're going to find joy and you're going to be happy. And, and we think that uh, you're going to be a good little boy and go back. I said, well, I guess I have no, no choice in the matter. But the higher part of you knows. The higher part of you says, okay, this is, this is our job. This is our, this is what we signed up for. And so I woke up and I'm surrounded by cameras and news crews. They all reported me dead. <laughs> it was like six minutes or something. And I was dead. And I had this big, huge bandage on my neck, huge. And I was looking around going, 
what's going on? Oh, that's right. I'm back. <laughs> but I have toys and books. Who brings a little dying boy books? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you wanted the toy, toys and candy. Oh, my sisters got into this idea that they were going to share my candy. <laughs> I had a tree full of, you know, lifesavers. They're not getting any of that. Maybe some from the book of lifesavers because I got a lot of candy. <laughs> A lot of candy and toys, and I had a hippo that was spotted. Beautiful, beautiful hippo. And I'm surrounded. People asking me all these questions. You know, what's it like? Not what's it like on their side, but they're thinking, you know, what's it like to be, you know, having gone through all this? And I think I said, I don't know. I mean, essentially, I'm back, and you know, I'm a kid. You know, what do I know? How do I describe this to you? You know, to fellow humans? How do I describe it to adults? So lots of smiles and lots of pictures and toys and candy, and then they left. Well, and that was back in a time where the term near-death experience had had not even been created yet. Precisely. Right. And so I imagine they treated you more like, I, I don't know, were you tabbed as the miracle boy? I actually was, yeah. The, the miracle boy, yeah. <laughs> See, I could be a headline writer. <laughs> well, you were. <laughs> but you did, you know, you did... I obviously uh, do some writing in that, but it was called uh, the one in a million uh, accident. Wow. Uh, the miracle boy. It gets more interesting because what happened was, and this is something that you, you, we, you know, your listeners or you can take with a grain of salt, but the, the doctor came in and told my, my, you know, my, my, my mom, Mrs. Gillette, you know, I go to the same church as you do. So I have no reason to prevaricate. There's no reason I would lie about this, but this x-ray I'm showing you, I cannot show to the press. She said, why? She says, because it shows the bolt slightly bent to miss your son's vital organs. But I hold the bolt in my hand and it's perfectly straight. He said, when we took it out, it wasn't bent. <laughs> he said, that's a bit much for some people to take. And he said, it generally was, it genuinely was a miracle. And she said, wow, what could she say? And my dad said the same thing. And, and we just kind of like, okay, you know, whatever. My mom, it took her, she was a writer. It took her three years to, to put this into writing so she could explain to me what I had gone through. She said, you saved several lives. She said, there were so many miracles on that day. I, I, I can only name five. She says, for the most part, the first one was, you didn't feel any pain. Second was, you didn't bleed to death. The, 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 the bolt acted like a cork. The third one is you're not damaged in any way that is going to be long term. The fourth one, your aunt was afraid to have an operation, but she said, if my nephew can go through this, I can have an operation. It saved her life. And the fifth one, she said, just you're still my little boy. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> That's really awesome. That's great. I love to hear that. Yeah, me too. Before we move on to your next unusual death experience, that's a new term I just coined. Is there anything more about the eight-year-old boy that you want to tell us? Um, from that point forward, I became fascinated, as you are now, with the idea of leaving the body and coming back. And maybe there's more going on than we think in this three-dimensional world. Were you going to a church that taught you about that? Or was this kind of foreign and new? No, no, no. No, there's nothing to, to deal with the church. In fact, I became a heretic <laughs> in a way because I was going to church and I think I was about 
I'd already studied quite a bit of religions and, and uh, uh, different uh, aspects of near death and stuff. So by the time I was like 14, I was questioning the pastors <laughs> and they had no answers. And they were saying, there's only one way to get there. And I said, I don't think there is. I said, I think that there are many, many ways to get there and there's many paths to get there. And I don't think you can tell me any more than I already know as far as that goes. I said, I appreciate your work in this aspect, but I'm not going to come back and listen. <laughs> because you're saying there's only one way to go. And I didn't, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that there was only one path. I felt that your path was your path and it all led to the same place. And if I had been born Buddhist, I would not be a sinner. I would not be in a position to where I can now, I can no longer find my path back to my, you know, real, my spirit. So I said, so I don't, I don't buy it. I don't, I can't buy it. I studied Judaism and I studied Buddhism. I studied all these. And I said, so I appreciate your work, but uh, you won't see me here again. <laughs> and I got back into the books. In addition to that, I imagine it was unusual growing up, you know, during teenage years and things like that, with the knowledge that you had that other people don't. You knew there was something more than just this life because you had experienced it and remembered it. Yeah. I think what happens is I couched it in humor. So I was able to to get beyond people's fear by saying, well, here's what, here's what I remember. But you know, life is just, <laughs> let's just enjoy it while we got it. You know, that kind of thing. So I got into that aspect of just being, enjoying life. So comedy was your therapy. I guess comedy and playfulness and, and getting past the seriousness of people who really essentially are just in, in fear of death. Yeah. But also having an experience like that, you can feel very alone. You can feel like you're the only one. Oh, yeah. That, oh, I hate to call it a secret, but almost like you're the only one that knows this secret and nobody else around you really understands. And especially back then, when people didn't know the term near-death experience, who could you even talk to about it? Well, that was the hard part. Even people who had the experience didn't want to talk about it. Right. They were still they were still either very cloudy on it or they were terrified of it. And I interview people like that all the time. If they had their experience in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you didn't talk about it. Because if you did, people said you were crazy. Sure. And they would treat you that way. So I think that must have been something hard to deal with at your age, not being able to talk about it or process it. So you turn to humor and that's a positive thing. Well, if I'm already crazy, then I don't have to worry about what I tell people. <laughs> okay. I get it. That makes sense, right? Yeah. A lot of people would ask me about it all the time. And I'd say, well, here's what I've gone through. Doesn't mean it's going to be your reality. I'm only, you know, at that time, 16, 17 years old. And then I got into uh, martial arts and I got into meditation and, and deeper and deeper into it. And I realized there's a lot more going on that I can't begin to describe to people. But it doesn't mean that it is, you know, something that I, I want to uh, uh, marginalize because it's so powerful. So I just said, listen, however you get to your point of spirituality is up to you. But essentially, there's no one's life that's like another one's. So stop looking at someone else's life and going, oh, I wish I had done this. Or I, I, I. No, it's a waste of your time. Just live your life the best you can. Be a good person. Love yourself. That's the key I found. By not loving yourself is what gets people lost. 
honor yourself. You say, I have these experiences. They're my experiences. And I started writing the book back then, actually. I didn't finish the This Boy's About to Die 33, 33 years later. <laughs> really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I just started putting bits and pieces together. And then I started reading my mom's notes. I'm going, wow, this is real. <laughs> I better kind of find a way to come to terms with the idea of maybe teaching other people, you know, how to, how to deal with this. You don't have that bolt, do you? Yeah, sure do. You do? With me now? No. It's in my storage in California. But, but you own it. You have it. You know where it is. Oh, yes. Oh, probably, yes. Half of it with blood stain. It's beautiful. I want to see that sometime. And I have the articles from the, from the, my, my, my uncle actually worked for the uh, utility company. So they put, you know, pain in the neck <laughs> was the, they put out a brochure, make sure you clean up after yourself, blah, 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 all this other stuff. <laughs> what does it say in the newspaper? Here's a genius headline for you. Bolt hits boy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How crap. I was like, you guys took the day off that day. How about, and boy can't hit back. <laughs> that, see, that would be better. Something, you know, can you imagine? At least pain in the neck is funny. It gets your, it gets your mind going, why and how? Yeah, we need the teaser. All right, let's go forward to the year 2000. And I, I know you can't have something uh, really kind of bizarre happen again. You know, some people are hit by buses. That's pretty bizarre. What happened to you? Where are you going with this? <laughs> You were hit by a truck. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Tell us about it, though. Were you, were you a pedestrian? Were you in a car? What happened? Here we go. So I was with my fiance, Laura, and she had just finished uh, doing, we were both massage therapists. Uh, we're called Healing Hands in California. We were happily massaging people, making money. I was doing voice acting and, and recording a lot of different shows and doing radio. And she was uh, teaching English, uh, and she was an English major, and had flown to England and studied Shakespeare and all that. We were, we were quite a couple, but she used to tell stories on stage. And then we got together, and I kind of peppered some of, some of her stuff with some with more interesting stories about non-angelic stuff, because she told stories angels came to hear. I mean, she was that, she, we were like salt and pepper, yin-yang. Because she would tell stories and people would bring angel gifts who never met her before. It's just literally just something about her, my little angel on earth. I, I called her, you know, just, this is amazing. She couldn't do any evil characters. I would, <laughs> I would, I would audition her for evil. And she, her evil characters had to be nice. <laughs> so I had the witch be maybe kind of a little more adult and, and she actually loves children and doesn't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> so she had a heck of a time doing my characters that I that I auditioned her for, <clears throat> but we played and had a good time and did a few TV shows, uh, you know, local TV shows and a lot of shows like for libraries and museums and uh, you know book days and schools everything you know we we had a great time. Well, one day we decided that uh, maybe it might be fun to go to the Cajun Creole Festival in uh, Simi Valley, California. And uh, I think it's a wonderful idea because I've never done it before. So I picked her up at her uh, chiropractor where she was doing massage that morning in CB Valley and picked her up. I'd already scouted the area and then I came back to pick her up, you know, because it didn't start. Well, it started about maybe nine o'clock. I was there about seven o'clock, seven thirty. 
someone to go and pick her up because, oh, I, I dropped her off. That's why I was there early. And uh, then I went to pick her up and brought her back. And we had a wonderful day, Eric, a wonderful day. Just, just delightful. Love, love, love. Dancing, playing. Well, here's where it gets a little bit, you know, more interesting is as we enjoyed the day, we were heading back to the car and we were crossing the street on what they would call an implied crosswalk because it's the only way to get to the parking lot from the event. And the parking lot was the train station, the old train station in Sandy Valley. So as we're crossing, we're still dancing. She's so playful. She's so loving. This is my girl. And uh, next thing I know, the lights went out. They just went black. Well, it turns out we were hit by a truck doing 50 miles an hour and took us both out. Literally took us both out. She flew 191 feet and I flew about, I guess, 81 feet. And she hit her head on a truck and, and died on the way to the hospital. And I died with her from my injuries. And so we went together. <laughs> now, that's something that you probably haven't encountered too many times. No, I haven't. And by the way, if we have a listener out there that died with someone else and you both came back, I would love to talk to both of you at the same time. That'll be a new one for the show. Yeah, because guess who didn't come back? Yeah, so you were the only one that came back. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. I came back and learned to walk again. But in the meantime, I was just in joy with this woman. We were animals. We were wind. We were leaves. We were everything you can imagine. Playing hide and seek in ice and just just unbelievable stuff that I could just just barely describe to somebody in a three-dimensional world. It was so beautiful and so wonderful. And she's... And I could see her through the ice, and she didn't know I could see her. Because <laughs> she was she played hide and seek in this, this, this iceberg. And I was like, I see you. <laughs> so do you mind if we if we take this a little bit step by step and kind of chronologically as you can remember it? What's the first thing you remember? Like like when you were eight, you were kind of up by the ceiling and you saw your body, and then you went to another place. Did the same thing happen here? Can you walk us through the story? No, uh, well, what happened was it was just black, and then I was with her, and we were dancing and playing and having it. That's exactly how it happened. And where would you say you were, or describe what it looked like? We were in a world that is more real than this one, because we were everything at once. And because of that, we were able to enjoy each other's spirits and smile and play. And there's no time-space continuum out of the body, as you, as you probably know by now. So because of that, we didn't know how long we were, I felt like months, but you know, I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> and then uh, one day she smiles and just looks at me and I see her beautiful blue eyes. And then I see beautiful wings are blue behind her. And I say, uh oh, <laughs> I have a feeling I'm either going to get my wings or I'm not, because we used to talk about that. And she said nothing, but she just gently pushed me back. And that was it. And I woke up in a very, very dark room. And I thought I was on a boat. Turns out I was on a bed that goes like this to get my circulation going. And a machine that squeezes my feet for circulation. And I'm asking the person in the dark, can you stop squeezing my feet, please, so I can sleep? <laughs> But it's all in my head because I'm intubated. Yeah. How long had you been in the hospital at this point? So I was there at that point. It was only a few days. And then uh, 
the lights came on and I saw what was going on. I was like, whoa, <laughs> oh, that's right. I get to come back. I didn't know. And all the machines and everything, are, I'm like, oh, crap. And without Laura. Yeah, how much grief was associated with that right then? Remarkable amount of grief uh, that was, uh, I guess you would say, assuaged by love because I knew that that was why I had to be there. And I was glad, I was grateful, not for my life, but because she didn't have to go through this because I knew I could do it. I was already, you know, gone through twice and, and I knew that I could, I, could, I could do whatever I had to do. I didn't know I'd be in ICU for five weeks, 27 bones broken. I didn't know that. All I knew was that I had to somehow find my way back to being whatever I had to do. Learn to walk again. Start all over. I knew that was my job. And she made sure I knew it. <laughs> I think you mentioned to me previously that you had another NDE during this experience in the hospital. Yeah, that was not that long afterwards. I was still in ICU in room number four. And what was that like? Did you get to go visit Laura again? And no, it wasn't Laura. It was my brother from another mother, Greg from Germany. And he came to visit me and he was all in his little suit and everything. And he's a world famous linguist and everything. And uh, I saw a little thing on his, on his shirt, you know, and I said, Oh, you got the little linguist button. And he had a little brown suit and next, I was gone again. And then next thing I know, they bring me back because it was just a code blue. And they threw his ass out in the hallway. They <laughs> said, like, no, you can't be. Because he lied to say he was my real brother just to get in. <laughs> so did somehow that visit set this off <laughs> to where you coded again? Oh, yeah, it was a bit too much. It was a bit too much for my heart. Yeah. I just, I mean, your, your body goes through all these things and, and, and new surprises aren't really probably what you're really good for, you know. So do you remember leaving your body again that time? No, there was no time on that one. That was the, the shortest <laughs> because as soon as I blacked, it was, I was back in no gray. Greg was gone. <laughs> and he later would say, I'm sorry, I almost killed you. I said, what do you mean almost? Bozo, you did. <laughs> you, you did. You got thrown out of the room and you did kill me. And that was, like I said, a short one. And the next thing I know, I'm back on my mission. What do I do next? You know, what do I do? Which is what? Learn to walk again get over whatever I have to do. And actually the hardest day I ever had, the only day I actually cried was when I was actually out of that room into a real room with uh, what they call uh, ABS, adult uh, brain uh, ABD uh, ward, because they thought I might've had some kind of brain damage from that. But they gave me tests that they said, there's no way, but you could have the whole room. And I said, yeah, look around. There's no one here, right? I'll take it. <laughs> they said, whatever it is, didn't, didn't mess with your brain. They were giving me numbers to repeat and stories, and I would give it to them verbatim. That's amazing. You can get hit by a truck and not have a traumatic brain injury. Well, here's the funny thing is that I didn't know if I did or not, but they were giving me a diphenylhydantoin, dilantin, all the time. And I did not like that because it burns your veins, when it goes in, it burns and you have to follow it with saline. So I tried to get them off of Dilantin as fast as possible. And I remember thinking, you know, this is the only time I'm really actually in pain is because the veins felt like they were exploding <laughs> with, with the Dilantin. And I said, if I'm able to pass the tests, can you get me off this crap? <laughs> but the only time I cried, I mean, because the Dilantin would be, 
I was in a room with four other people and one guy just kept on calling for the nurse, even though he had a nurse button. And his name was Bill. So he was on my right going, nurse, 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 nurse. <laughs> Bill, shut up. Push the button with the little nurse face on it. Nurse. Well, the guy across from me uh, was cowboy trying to get off his horse. He's trying to get out of this. So apparently it wasn't the right word. And he's going, I'm getting, I'm leaving tonight, Gary. I'm leaving, I'm leaving. I'm getting on my horsey and I'm riding out of here. I'm going, the last time you did that, you broke your leg, cowboy. You may not want to do that again. And the other kid was uh, injured in a ski accident. And he was in a lot of pain. and had a lot of tubes. So I had all the tubes in me. So I was doing like voices and sounds to entertain him. I was little R2-D2, and then, oh no, R2 has all these tears in him. What are we going to do? So I would make them laugh, and they were enjoying that. And I was like, okay, so that's what I dealt with there. When they put me in the big room, uh, then I said, okay, there's no one here but me, you know? And I, I like that idea, but they, they showed me a video that was sent to me of Laura's funeral, and that's when I cried. And I didn't cry for me. I cried for the world, because that's how much Laura was so powerful, so beautiful, an angel that had to leave a little early. And the nurses said, you know, you've done PT and you've done so good and we're just going to let you stay in bed and bring you hot tea and some blankets, and, you know, and, and that was it. I had my good cry and, and let it go. You mentioned angel wings a few minutes ago. Yeah. Blue angel wings, if I remember right. Yes. I always thought angel wings were uh what's the word i'm looking for they were more of a symbolic thing that's what you get for not dying <laughs> i yeah i assume that they were a symbolic thing are you saying that they're real that some angels actually have wings yeah but there are there are they are a symbolism of being pure yeah and she used to see me on earth with purple ones she could she could see stuff like that when we massage people, she could see pets you had in your, 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 as a boy. She could say, oh, there's Timmy. Look at Timmy, the little poodle. And I can see a blob. <laughs> and she could say, Timmy, oh, there's your horse. What's his name? Chestnut? Oh, my God. Freaked him out. She had that kind of, you know, she could do that. That's amazing. So I wasn't that surprised when she says, oh, I see your wings are purple. I go, they are? <laughs> and I said, I have a feeling yours, yours are like kind of a bluish color because I could, I could see auras. And she goes, oh, I don't know. I can't see my own. She even wrote a book for me that she did, I didn't see until she died. Can you imagine that? She wrote a book called Angel in Training. And she died without me knowing about it until I cleaned out the, the, the file cabinet. And it's complete. The, the whole book is complete. Is that something that you've had published or that's just a personal thing for you? Still, still kind of working on it. I haven't found an artist besides me. And I don't know if I'm good enough to, I think I am, but I'm working on it to get the beautiful illustrations I want. My, my books are all eBooks, so I haven't had a chance to really do a hard copy, but it's all finished. It's all on white paper. So I'm trying to put this whole picture together of this conversation. And, and I think what comes to me as sort of the bottom line is you are someone that had opportunity to, to die and not come back a few times in your life, but you were sent back. I want to ask the big why, you know, I mean, you must think about this. Why was I sent back? And it may have been for your sisters early on, but at this point in your life, 
do you feel like you have some kind of responsibility or mission or something else that you need to accomplish before someday you're gone for the last time? Virtually every day. (laughs) Every day I'm alive. I think of that. But I also am very Zen. So I know that my death is tomorrow. Your death is tomorrow. It's not something that you can say, oh, I have to do this before I die. I've written seven books. I've published three. I have others that I'm writing all the time. Just to, It's more of a catharsis than anything else, but it's also, I've talked to people and literally their lives changed overnight. Just by talk, just by just by saying a couple things that they needed to hear. I mean, literally the last two weeks I've changed. Two, they had no idea until they asked the right questions and I happened to have the right answers. They didn't even read my book yet. <laughs> I just I just asked the question. I said, well, the thing is, when you ask the right question, I will have an answer that maybe you need to hear. It's usually about, you know, respecting yourself and love and stuff like that. Oh, here's an interesting aside. When I was, ah, I knew my mother was going to die. I didn't, I didn't know exactly when, but I knew I got kind of a, a feel in the air in October that she was going to die soon. And it, it was like very soon. And I wasn't sure, but I dealt with it. And I had, I cried then and I didn't cry. And my friend was with me in my driveway in Tarzana. And he said, what's going on? And I said, well, I just felt my mother die. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, but I'm not crying for her. I'm crying for my dad because he's going to take it really, really hard. And he did. He took it so hard that I wrote the epitaph and I wrote uh, the, the everything I could, uh, the, the eulogy. And she visited me on the night I wrote the eulogy that night in the shower of all places, Eric. <laughs> okay, mom, I know this isn't personal, but what do you want? Gary, I want you to tell your father one thing. And I said, what? Forgive yourself. Let it go. And I said, well, what the heck does that mean? He goes, tell your father to forgive himself. That was it. And anything else? I love you. That was it. Bye, mom. (laughs) Whatever. It was a short transmission. I guess sometimes you have to be to the point, and sometimes you have this little window, and there's only certain people that can actually, you know, hear it. So I went to the kitchen, and he's sitting there eating Cheerios, and my dad was just just eating slowly and he's very Germanic and very, you know, very stoic about his emotions. I said, Hey dad, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm I'm fine. I said, "Um, listen, mom told me to tell you something. And boy, what? Oh, this is not going to end well. (laughs) And I said, well, (laughs) she told me to tell you to forgive yourself in all my years, Eric, I've never seen my father cry before. He lost it. He said, why you? (laughs) I said, what do you mean, why me? He said, how would you know? I didn't even know what I was saying. He said, I wouldn't let her go. He said, she died in my arms. and I wouldn't let her go. Like, wow, that's kind of powerful. But why you? Why you, Gary? (laughs) He still didn't get the big picture. And I said, well... Dad, you know how some people get UHF and BHF? I get HBO. I get Heaven's Box Office. <laughs> and she told me to tell you, and that was it. And from that point forward, he let go, and he was okay. But I was also given five more things to say that night. 
because she wouldn't let me go to bed. Well, she did. At 2.30 in the morning, she woke me up. Gary, here's five things I want you to say at my funeral. Oh, really? So I get to, okay, let's do this. <laughs> so I took out, I'd already written everything that I thought I could think of, you know. And then I took five or, or one small piece of notepad and put it and started writing. You know, and she started telling me things. Love yourself while you can. Love others while you can. You know, the stuff that just seems basic, right? You know, the, your time is limited. You know, don't judge other people. Whatever, you know. And I was like, okay, okay. Anything else? Number five. Okay, there it is. What else, mom? That is it. I said, okay, well, I love you. I love you. <laughs> I love you. And she was gone. And that was, uh, that was it. And I paper clipped it and went to bed that next day we did the funeral and uh, I read everything off just as, as well as I can I'm a decent writer so I knew that there are things that people could relate to and I said oh there's five more things mom told me to tell you last night and if it was anyone else they would have said you're insane but instead they went it's Gary <laughs> Of course, it's Gary. <laughs> we might want to listen because he doesn't prevaricate. There's no reason to make anything up. And he's gone through all this stuff. I said, okay. I read them off. One, two, three, four, five. Everyone was crying. It's like, what? I don't know what happened. I still don't know. And then my friend comes up to me and said, you know, me and my wife had a fight last night. We just went on and on and on and on and on. We had no more tears to give. We were done, and this you got us. <laughs> you got us anyway. I said, what did I say? They said, it's not you. It's the way you said it. I said, what do you mean? People said, yeah, it wasn't you. It was, it was your mother talking. We, we didn't hear you. I was like, what? I said, did anyone videotape this? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to have to look at those notes and figure out what I said. Either way, it got everybody. And you know what happened? I went back for those notes and they were gone. I put them in my briefcase, you know, I put them in my briefcase and took them home and they just disappeared. So for lack of a stapler, <laughs> I have no idea what I said on that day. I have no idea. But she told them what she wanted to tell them, which I thought was pretty cool. And I've had visits. In fact, when my dad died later, he and I became so close after that because he got it now. He got it. And when he died, we were talking about uh, Houdini leaving messages. So he says, I'm going to try to do that. I said, good luck with that. Let's see if we could. And you know what he did? One time I came home and my messages were him trying to talk to me as a whisper, like very scary, but not scary to me, but scary if you just hear, it's me. I know it's you, dad. What are you trying to tell me? Because you know about EVP, right? The vocal recordings or whatever they call it. So I was like, wow, he got through. And I was like, he took up the whole bloody tape. <laughs> they don't have any space time. So he was just telling me what he could tell me. It's your father. Do you remember? I told you. Here I am. I love you. It's your father. It's me. Just over and over and over. And you know what I had to do? I had to erase it. It was the only tape I had. And I was in, in the middle of doing recordings and stuff. It's the only way I could. That in those days, you can only... Have, you know, they didn't have a little bit, it's just one. <laughs> yeah, that reel to reel quarter inch tape, I remember. <laughs> so I, I said, Dad, I told him, I said, I have to 
get messages from my agent, my manager, and all the other people in my life. I, I'm just going to say I love you and, and goodbye. And that was it. Two more questions for you, and I'll let you go. How much fear of death do you have? <laughs> really? That's the one you got? Come on, you got another one. I have no fear of death, obviously. I just wanted to hear you say it. That's all. I didn't have any fear since day one. Why would I have a fear of death that something I saw as a baby and I had no preconceptions? And that's the difference between someone like you and the rest of the world. Most people, they don't talk about it, but there is some kind of a fear of death out there because it's unknown. It's scary. Some people don't believe there is anything else. So that would be scary. Well, it's more scary when you have preconceptions, I think, because you are trying to believe somebody else's words for what is on the other side. Sure. When you have no preconceptions, then there's no fear. I never saw anything that made me think, wow, this is really just like I heard. <laughs> Nothing close to that. But everybody, it's a subjective interpretation of your own reality in a sense, isn't it? I mean, you will find what you need to learn. And so I found that healing is my forte. I mean, I broke my toe just a couple of days ago. I laughed it off. I broke my knee last year in Cheyenne and ruptured my quads because my knee didn't go over the e-bike when I went over the e-bike, the handlebars. <laughs> and I was two months in, in uh, rehab and walking up snow stairs and, and laughing the entire time. I said, that's all you got. <laughs> you know, seriously, this is, this, is, this is just another day. So now I'm, you know, I don't get sick and I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I, don't I don't feel like there's any day that I just go, I have to go out there. I get to experience this life. It's a privilege. And, and I remind myself and I try to tell other people, what you say to yourself is the most important thing you'll ever hear. And if you say to yourself, I can't do this or I won't do this or, or, or somebody else is controlling my life, then they will. You'll give them the power over you. Even when you use the H word, which I've abolished from my vocabulary, you know which one I mean, right? So why, why, why give something that kind of power over you? Even if you say, oh, you know, I really didn't enjoy hitting my toe on that and I broke it. Well, how do I feel about that? So what? Let it go. You see what I'm saying? It wasn't the table's fault. <laughs> the table was sitting there going, I tried to tell you, Mara, walk around me. <laughs> I love it. All right. Question number two and last. Somebody out there today that's listening to this is either is either grieving the loss of a loved one, they're maybe grieving something that's happening to them in life. What do you have to say to them? Those entities you're grieving know it, and they are with you still. They're not just in your heart and soul. They're a part of you. They know. And when you quiet your mind, your soul, your spirit, meditate, whatever, they will tell you. You'll hear them. Because they're constantly trying to con contact us. They're always trying to do that. But realize that they're okay. <laughs> you know, that I think the hardest part is for the people left behind. Because we have to deal with, you know, the loss, right? So every night I say, you know, thank you to the universe in 35 languages. And blow kisses to my fiance's picture on the wall. <laughs> and tell her I love her. And I sleep like you know, like a baby. That's awesome. I can't wait until someday I can see you and Laura back together again. That'll be fun. 
Well, you will, but, you know, <laughs> hopefully, you know, it will be at the time when you're ready. <laughs> oh, I don't mean tomorrow. <laughs> no, I don't mean that either, but I mean, we will be together because we're together now, you know, as, as you probably can imagine. Uh, she visits me in my dreams all the time. She plays hide and seek with me. In fact, a lot of dead people do. My own, my own grandparents like to do that. So I'll be sitting there and I'll walk into a room and they're eating at a table and they all look at me, all the ones who have passed. They say, you can't be at our table yet. I said, come on, it's beautiful. No, 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 you're over here. You can't join us yet. And they laugh and laugh. And they go, you know what I know. You know. <laughs> he says, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a fair game of hide and seek. With, with people in the spiritual realm, they've got an advantage over you. Yeah, but I do catch them. My brother-in-law tried to hide in the garage where he used to live. And I saw him, I go, you know, you're not with us anymore. He goes, yeah, you got me. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> That's awesome, Gary. Laura comes as little girls and, and animals all the time. So she, she gets to visit me all the time. So this veil that we think is so thick between this realm and the other is really very, very loose, you know, very, very small, very, very transparent. We just don't see it. You have to remember, we're receivers that are designed to, 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 to take in information. But, I mean, we barely, in, in, in a two-mile radius of, of energy, we're maybe two inches of information that we can actually get. And every person who is looking through their eyes like you are now is interpreting the world differently than everybody else. Because you have to. Because your brain has to make sense of everything. It's, it's there to tie down to kind of help you figure out what it is you're perceiving, right? But if you perceive what you desire and perceive through love, the whole world changes slightly. Gary Mahalo. You're welcome. <laughs> Appreciate you being with us today. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks again for listening and a quick reminder to follow this podcast and take a few seconds to write a review. It helps others to easily find us. Until next time, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Mm -hmm.